0: The context, as Sam <clears throat> just read for us, in chapter 4, 1 through 20, this parable of the soils, or sometimes people say the parable of the, uh, the sower, shows us that the message of the kingdom will be unfruitful among many, or we might say most. <clears throat> it will prove unfruitful among most. But that raises a lot of questions. Given such mixed responses to the gospel message, will God's kingdom actually arrive in the person of Jesus? And if so, how? And why would God choose to bring the kingdom this way amidst much rejection? Like this is God's master plan to come and to announce the arrival of his kingdom in Jesus only for it to be largely rejected and maybe we can feel similarly as well if you're honest with yourself do you ever doubt that God is truly directing history towards his kingdom does God's way of working in this world ever confuse you maybe you have your own ideas about how things should go we have our own expectations about this is what we think God should be doing Does it ever feel like what you're doing for Christ isn't actually making much of a difference? If we're honest, things in the kingdom of God are sometimes confusing. Oftentimes things don't go the way we expect them to or the way we think they should. And you can imagine that this is probably how Jesus' disciples felt as well here. One moment, Jesus has all these crowds following him. And the next, he's rejected by the premier theologians and religious scholars and even the likes of his own family. And even among the crowds that did follow him, many of them don't seem to be genuinely interested in his actual message and who he actually is. This is the arrival of God's kingdom that the book began with. The parables in this chapter Provide an answer to these doubts and to that sense of confusion. The message of this latter section of parables, verses 21 to 34, we might summarize this way that although the kingdom of God is hidden from many and has seemingly insignificant beginnings, it will be discovered by some and grow tremendously that although the kingdom is concealed to many and has seemingly insignificant origins it is discovered by some and will grow beyond measure and so i've titled this sermon the unexpected kingdom this series as you see is the unexpected king we see that jesus is the king of god's kingdom and the king that arrives is an is of unexpected nature He does not look like what people thought he was to look like, what the king they expected would be like. And so, too, the kingdom that he brings, it comes in an unexpected way. It is an unexpected kingdom. You see, a lot of contemporary Jewish uh, religious folks during that time um, would have expected the kingdom to arrive sort of suddenly and dramatically, what we sometimes mean by the term apocalyptic, All of a sudden, the end of history would arrive and God would usher in his kingdom in full, whether that was the zealots who thought they could bring about the kingdom by force and political means, whether that was the Pharisees who, seeing what happened to Israel in her disobedience and being exiled, said maybe we bring the kingdom by a strict observance of God's law, or whether that was the Essenes, who said, you know what, Jerusalem is um, going somewhere in a handbasket Let's get out of there, go to the wilderness, and kind of start our own thing, our own pure community. And that will usher in the the kingdom of God. But they expected it to come suddenly and dramatically. And in response to their own actions that they would usher in, in, in many ways, the kingdom of God. Jesus, though, says that the kingdom arrives quite differently than that. It's an unexpected kingdom. But when we use the term kingdom of God, Uh, I want to make sure sure we actually understand what we mean by that. Uh, Matthew's gospel uses this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, which I think has sometimes caused confusion for people, where when Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is this or the kingdom of heaven is like that, sometimes people um, misconceive it as being heaven itself. The kingdom of heaven is heaven. It's one day when we die, we go to heaven, and that is the kingdom. That's not actually what Jesus means by this phrase kingdom or kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. The kingdom is the saving reign of God through the person of Jesus Christ. At creation, God was king and he was ruler over all of creation. And he appointed Adam and Eve as his image bearers to mirror, that is to be his image, to mirror his rule and have dominion, to to be vice regents and exercise his kingdom on his behalf. Um, But as humanity falls, so the kingdom is corrupted. And God's plan from that point on is to restore his kingdom, which is none other than to restore his creation. It is to restore, the kingdom of God is the restoration of God's rule over this creation, over a people that he has redeemed for himself. So it is a this earthly reality. It is the restoration of things on this earth in the people that he has saved. And it happens then through the saving work of Jesus Christ, who dies to make us citizens and restores us um, under God's rule. And so the kingdom of heaven, we might say, is like Jesus says in the, uh, the Lord's Prayer. When, they, when uh, God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, it is the reign of heaven come to bear on uh, this world. And so when we get to these parables, what we'll see... In verses 21 and following, is that we get four parables. Really, each of them is introduced with this phrase. And he said, the first two um, are come to us in verse 21 and 23 through 23, and then verses 24 and 25. And these show us these parables show us how the kingdom is revealed, how it is introduced and made known. The latter two parables return to the theme of agriculture, just like the parable of the soils was an agricultural parable. So we return to this idea of plant growth, and those two parables show us how the kingdom grows. So the first two parables show us how the kingdom is revealed. The second two parables show us how the kingdom grows. And so we will just walk through these parables one by one. We might introduce the parables, though, with a question the question that's sort of looming in the narrative at this point. The first question you might imagine someone asking is this. If the message of the kingdom is largely rejected, is it effective? If the the message of the kingdom, the message of the good news of the arrival of God's kingdom in Jesus, if that message is largely rejected, is that message effective, or is there something defective about it? Jesus gives this parable in verse 21 to 23. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? Of course, the answer to that question is no. It's a, you bring a lamp in to put it on a stand. For nothing, he explains, is hidden except to be made manifest. Nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Lamps, in other words, are meant to give light. You don't hide lamps. You don't put them under a basket. You put them on a stand. In other words, the arrival of the kingdom in Jesus, although it is hidden to most, it is hidden so that it can ultimately be found by those whom God has appointed to find it. It is hidden so that it can be found. So it is hidden to most. Many don't understand the parables as we see, as we saw in the in the last uh, section that Dan preached last week, verses 1 through 20. The parables have that effect of concealing to many, but to those who are appointed to understand, those who truly seek out what is going on in the parables, it is revealing. It both conceals and reveals and so some things we hide so that people don't find them right like if you if you have like a safe in your house or something you're stashing away money it's so that people don't find it they don't steal it but jesus is saying there are some things that are hidden so that they can be found you might think of it like a scavenger hunt so I don't know if your families do this, but on Resurrection Sunday or Easter, oftentimes families, what do they do? They hide eggs and their kids go and find the eggs, right? I'm not going out there and hiding eggs to be like, where's a place that Abel was never going to find this, right? I'm going to make it like impossible. No, I want him to find it, right? And so Jesus presents the parables, yes, to conceal it to those who, are, who aren't actually interested, to those who do not have the spiritual uh, aptitude, to truly, that are really after who Jesus is and not just after the show and the miracles. But it, he hides it so that it can be found by those who are truly seeking after it, those that God has prepared. Like a scavenger hunt, God presents the gospel in hidden form in these parables so that it can be found. He gives a second imagery then that accompanies it, that supplements it in verses 24 to 25. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So Jesus uses this language of measurements. This is this is this is language that comes from the market, like scales that you would use to measure things in the market. And the idea is one of reciprocity. What you use to measure is Jesus' sayings is then the measure by which of, of what you'll get out of it, right? How you weigh Jesus' teaching in the scales, in other words, determines what you will get out of it. And we, we know this experience from other elements of life, right? Maybe, at, maybe you, when you were in college or in high school, you took an elective or some sort of class, and you really enjoyed that class, but there was maybe a fellow students who after the class was completed, they're like, ah, that class was a waste of time. That was a waste of money. And you're like, how? Like, How did you not get so much out of that? right? Because sometimes there's a, there's a way where you can go through a class and you can you not really put in the effort. And of course, you're not going to get much out of it. Or maybe you've read a book that you really enjoyed and you met someone else who read the book and it's not very good, they say. But you're like, did you actually like pay attention to the book? Did you actually read it slowly enough to understand what it's saying or maybe a movie? You're like, how did you not appreciate that movie? You weren't like, well, no kidding, you didn't like the movie. You were on your phone the whole time, right? We know this reality. What you invest in something oftentimes can determine what you get out of it. And so that's the idea that Jesus is saying here. How you measure my teaching, by the same measurement, that will be what you get out of it. The NLT, the New Living Translation, uh, translates verses 24 and 25 this way, really kind of giving it a, more of an interpretation, but I think it helps get the idea. It says, the closer you listen, the more understanding will be given, and you will receive even more. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given. <laughs> But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away. What Those who have, those who pay attention and they have enough to actually grasp, they're going to be given more. They're going to gain insight. To those who are responsive to the message of the kingdom, the parables serve to reveal, providing greater insight. But for those who reject the message, the parables serve only to increase their blindness. What they, the little they had is actually taken away. And this is what we saw in the parable of the soils. In verses 1 through 20 that Dan preached. Some of the seed, it lands on soil and it proves fruitful. The plant grows. In other words, to the one who has, more is given. It increases. While other seed lands and it, and it doesn't take root. It doesn't prove fruitful. In other words, even what it has is taken away. In other words, the point of these first two parables is that the message of the kingdom is hidden so that it will be found by those who truly seek after it. The message of the kingdom is hidden so that it will be found by those who truly seek after it. And and, and that condition of being one who truly seeks, whether you seek, that is indicative of of a spiritual state, of a spiritual condition that only God can enable and provide. In Matthew, Matthew's gospel has statements that reflect this reality. In Matthew 16, verses 16 and 17, when Simon Peter confesses, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answers him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is, son of Jonah. Why? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Matthew 11:25 25 and 27, Jesus says, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, the unexpected. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will to graciously grant understanding to those who are unexpected. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so Jesus reflects this reality as well in in chapter 4, the parable of the the soils, where Jesus provides an explanation of that parable, really a parable on the parables, a parable that illustrates what the parables do, concealing and revealing. Jesus offers this explanation using the same language in today's passage. He says in verse 11, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. That's the same language you use here. To those who have more is given. To you has been given the secret. Only those things are secret are meant to be revealed. That which is hidden will be made manifest. To you, in other words, the disciples, those those who move beyond the parable and actually seek understanding, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. And so how do we respond to this first coupling of parables? The obvious application is, first of all, to hear and pay attention. Jesus uses that word hear three times. He ends the first parable with this call to hear, and he begins the second parable with a call to hear. Or he says, pay attention. In other words, the people heard the same parable. It's not the physical act of hearing. It's how you hear. It's not what you hear, but how you hear. In other words, are you attentive? Are you spiritually receptive? Martin Luther, in his book, Bondage of the Will, one of my favorite books. I'm going to throw that out as a book recommendation, Bondage of the Will by Martin Luther. Read it if you haven't. Martin Luther is, and the Lutheran tradition at large, is really good in, in, in this particular area, I found, is this idea that the Word of God is always, it's always accomplishing things. The Word of God is never just fruitless when the word of God goes out as we preach or as you share the gospel with someone or you share words from scripture with someone, it's never fruitless. fruitless. It never lacks an effect. It can either soften hearts and prove fruitful for those who are receptive to it, but for those who don't, it will harden. It's never neutral. Our response to the word is never just purely neutral. Like we just kind of cast it off and remain unaffected. The gospel can open up our eyes to our need for Christ. It can show us the beauty of, of what is available to us in, in the salvation that he's accomplished. But, but there are those who hear the gospel and the gospel is offensive to us in our sin. It doesn't just leave us unaffected. But, but, but Luther would say in, in The bonds of the Will, he talks about how because the gospel comes to people and we, we don't like it, it attacks our self-righteousness, that we actually walk away hardened. And so I think that that's one of the main applications of these first set of parables is to pay attention to how we hear. It is a serious act to listen and to to sit under the word of God, to be exposed to the word of God. We ought not to take it lightly. We ought to pay attention to how we hear. Are we responding appropriately? And for those here who are not believers, that's That's the initial call to you is to, if you have not yet put your faith in Christ, is to do so, is to pay attention to how we hear even now, to put your faith in Christ, who as we see the rest of the, the book will show us the way this kingdom ultimately arrives is through the death of Christ by him paying for our sin on the cross and to trust not in your own works but to trust in the work of Christ. And so first of all, we pay attention to how we hear but second of all, As we minister the word, as we minister the gospel, we anticipate mixed responses. As Jesus speaks this parable and as Mark writes this parable to those who are believers, those who are following Christ, at least in some sense, they are those who are responding appropriately to God's word, but he wants to equip them as they then um, share the gospel so they know what to expect. They expect people to reject it. And so we grow, or we don't grow discouraged, in other words, in the face of mixed results. We continue to trust God and just preach the gospel and be faithful. This is why we don't, for example, tailor our message in order to make it fit what people want to hear. As if their rejection means that there's something defective with the message. That we need to tweak the message in order to make it palatable to people. No, as Jesus explains here, the message of the gospel will be concealed to many. That doesn't mean we we need to be needlessly offensive. But we expect that it is a foolish gospel, as Paul says. It is seemingly foolish to many. It It is a smell of death to some and life to others. That's part of its effect. We are not surprised by that. Moving on to the third parable the second set of parables where we've seen the kingdom revealed, now the second set will show us the kingdom's growth. The question that I think looms in the narrative at this point is this, if its message remains hidden to most then, how can we work to grow the kingdom? If this message truly is hidden to many, as Jesus just got done saying, and revealed just to those who truly seek it, well then how are we gonna go about growing the kingdom? The short answer is you don't. God does. Look at verses 26 uh, through 29. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. We've We've been down this road before, right? It's as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, than the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. We get the image of a farmer or a gardener of sorts who neither makes his crop grow nor fully understands how it grows, right? Um, As I was thinking about this, it reminded me of A few years ago, this was pre COVID and before I was having knee issues, I decided to. um, I I don't like exercising in the gym. If I'm going to exercise, I want to do something fun like play soccer. And so I decided, well, I'm going to use one, I want to exercise, but I want to use it, might as well use it for like evangelistic outreach purposes. And so I started a pickup, some pickup soccer in Jackson Park. Um, Ryan, I don't think Ryan's here, but Ryan joined me for that, Ryan Janice. And the first week, we had nine people, I put some feelers out in these Facebook groups, we had nine people show up, really small, not much of anything, I'm like, I don't know if this is gonna turn out into much. I kid you not, the second week, we had enough people that we had to fill up two full soccer fields. So that's like 40 plus people, from nine to 40 plus. Now I know why that happened, because the south side of Milwaukee likes soccer, but I don't know how that happened. Like I just put some feelers out on Facebook, I scattered the seed, and the next thing I know, there's like hordes of people showing up. And they didn't even know I was the one who instigated it. Like, no one, it was just this mass group of people playing soccer. I didn't know how it happened. I don't know why it happened, but it just happened. And Jesus is saying that God's kingdom grows in ways that we can't discern or control. Just like the fact that those people showed up wasn't because I did anything special. So the kingdom grows in ways that we don't totally understand and in ways that we don't control. That's the harvest imagery here, right? The harvest imagery that's used elsewhere in scripture to refer to the end time judgment or the time when God will collect his people like we saw in Revelation 14. And so Jesus is saying that God's kingdom will grow into this harvest in ways that we don't discern or control. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, mere servants, through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. It's not anything about Paul or Apollos. You just believed through them. They're just vehicles of the gospel. I planted, Apollos watered, but who gave the growth? God gave the growth. Verse 7, So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. It's God who gives the growth. And so first of all, be encouraged, believer, that the growth of God's kingdom does not depend on you. You're not that important. I'm not that important. God is the one who grows his kingdom. It doesn't depend on us. The language that's used here is super humbling, isn't it? The person who kind of represents the worker, he sleeps, it says in verse 27, it says that the earth produces by itself. Like it doesn't need the guy, the guy who's throwing the seed. The earth produces by itself. He doesn't try to go in and like massage the seeds and, you know, try to make something happen, right? It just grows. We don't do anything to make the kingdom grow. We don't build the kingdom in that sense. We participate it. We do things that reflect it. We share the gospel and it spreads. But ultimately it's God who grows the kingdom. Why is it that two people who hear the same gospel and one of them responds and the other one doesn't? Why is it that one church experiences renewal and growth but maybe another one just down the road in the same city doesn't? Because it is God who gives the growth and sovereignly appoints as he wills. So we should neither be discouraged when our labor seems fruitless nor take pride when we reap the harvest as if we were its cause. Sometimes I think we wish the outcome depended on us. Like, in one sense, we like this. Teaching doesn't depend on us. Oh, great. But in another sense, I think we're we're kind of frustrated. We don't like it because we wish that we could manipulate the results. There's a temptation in the church to become result-centered. We take tactics into our own hands. Maybe we need to do something additional to attract people to the gospel. Or maybe we need a really charismatic Creature, or maybe we need really cool music i mean ours is cool right but maybe we need a band that's that's really something we're forced though to rely on god if it depends on him our call is simply to be faithful to pursue the ordinary means of grace administering god's word prayerfully to one another observing the ordinances community and to leave the results up to him And so although it's humbling, it's also comforting. The man sows, takes a nap afterwards, right? Here's my proof text for taking a nap after I preach on Sundays, right? Okay? Our labor for the kingdom is not an anxious toil. We labor, we do our job, and then we rest. We don't have to bear the burden that it all depends on us. And so be encouraged, believer. God is growing his kingdom's Kingdom in ways that we don't often notice and, and, and in ways that are beyond what we can see. Uh, what, the pastor that I had when I was in college and seminary, who was really my mentor in ministry for those first eight years, I remember one of the things that he struggled with that he often found, he would often say he finds discouraging, is just that you, unlike some professions, pastoring is one of those jobs where you're, you're dealing a lot of times with things that are intangible. You're preaching, you're speaking to people, and you're wanting to see results right and so one of the things that he did actually um, so that he kind of didn't drive himself mad was he started a hobby of carpentry so that he could take on projects that were concrete and he could kind of see the results right he liked being able to like feel and touch and see results see a product i worked and it outputted this sometimes with ministry not just for preaching but all of us who participate in ministry it doesn't feel like we can always grab on to the results like, what did, I I did all that labor, what did it produce? I can definitely relate to that as well. Um, I think all of us have different personal struggles. I think one of the areas that I can tend to struggle with is a prone to discouragement, sort of not feeling like what I do is really appreciated. Like, is it really a value? Like, is it actually making a difference? Is, is it actually helping people? Um, but we can be assured here that God is actually working and often in ways that we, we don't see. And so whether that's you're teaching the children and, and it, they were just crazy off the wall. Maybe, maybe one of my kids drew marker on the wall and it was, it was nuts. It was, a, it was a travesty, right? And you feel like, what's actually coming of this? Am I just, is all I'm doing is just keeping these kids alive? That's my only job. Or maybe you're leading a small group or participating in a small group and maybe it just doesn't feel like it's going all that well. People don't seem totally engaged. Or maybe you're serving on the women's ministry and, and, you, and you're, you're laboring hard or you're a deacon and you're, and you're doing these things but you don't know like, what sort of effect that's having. Maybe you're involved in a counseling situation um, and, and, it, and no matter how much you are counseling the person, things just don't seem to be getting better. Our labors bear fruit beyond what we see. We don't always get to see it right away. We don't always get to notice it. Sometimes it's, it's having an impact on one person and we don't know the impact that then they go on to have with others. And so we rest assured that God is bearing fruit even beyond what we notice ourselves. I, I think we often want growth to happen dramatically, dramatically and, and, and noticeably. Like we want growth to happen like events. We want to be showy and flashy, but oftentimes the growth is small, it's progressive, and it's unnoticeable in the moment. The last parable raises this question or answers this question. But things currently look really small, things look insignificant. How is this the start of the kingdom? If the kingdom is concealed to many and and God is in in charge of growing it, things at the moment, though, don't seem to be all that significant. This is, we imagine the, the disciples, those who are following Jesus, it's a small, 12, and then, you know, maybe there's others. We know from other scriptures there are some women, too, that follow Jesus. So we've got this small sort of ragtag group of disciples, and if we could get inside their head, we can imagine them thinking, like, this is the arrival of God's kingdom. This is it. And so, too, we can sometimes suffer from what we might call the Elijah syndrome. Remember Elijah after he confronts the prophets of Baal and God uh, shows up miraculously burning his drenched sacrifice? He's, he's then pursued by Jezebel. And he goes, I, even, even I only am left. I'm the only one. I'm the last, I'm the last thread hanging on, keeping God's kingdom alive. So what does Jesus say in verse 30 to 32? And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? it, It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade so jesus uses this image of the mustard seed which was uh, known it was proverbially used as this very small seed and out of the small insignificant seed grows something tremendously larger sometimes and we upload all of our uh, pictures into google photos so we have them um, in the cloud and hopefully a little bit more secure Um, And sometimes Anne, whether she's on Facebook or in the Google Drive, it will give us like these memories of things from like a few years back, you know. And it's incredible to look at these pictures of our kids from like Jubilee when, you know, like five years ago. And you're just like, how did this small little person become that? Like where people say like time flies with kids, right? That's kind of the idea here is that out of something so small, you you say, how how does something grow out of that? something massive emerges. The point here is that although God's presence of the kingdom may seem small and insignificant at times, obscure, it will prevail ultimately, and it will grow immeasurably large. Trees in the Old Testament, uh, these images of trees, were often used to refer to empires. So like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4, his, uh, his dream... Um, Daniel explains it in terms of of like a tree and the birds and the animals will come under the tree. The tree represents the Babylonian empire and, and the animals represent the nations. And so Jesus seems to be appealing to that same imagery here, that the kingdom is this empire. It's the kingdom that spreads and even nations will come under its scope. And so how do we respond to this message? Sometimes you'll hear folks uh, express a sentiment, something along the lines of, you know, the reason that we're seeing such moral decline in our country is because the church is failing. The pulpits aren't preaching what ought to be preached. And that, that, that may be part of it. It may be that churches are not standing for what they ought to stand or preaching what they ought to preach. But this sentiment sort of expresses a linking of the kingdom of God with the particular nation, as if the kingdom of God depends on a particular nation, or that the health of the nation reflects the condition of the kingdom, whether it's prevailing or not. Like if the, if the kingdom is prevailing, i.e. churches are preaching what they ought to preach, pulpits are strong, that of course would necessarily mean that the nation is strong. and We can kind of see this tendency at times where we, we link the kingdom of God with the nation. The same thing existed in the early church where Augustine writes the book City of God because as the empire of Rome was collapsing, and at that time the Roman Empire was a, at least externally and publicly would have considered itself a Christian empire, as the Roman Empire collapsed to the barbarians, a lot of Christians were like the kingdom of God is collapsing. We link the two. Christians have done this for centuries and, and no less today at times. But notice, the kingdom of God is not hitched to any nation or the the outcome or the destiny of any nation. The kingdom of God is distinct from them and will prevail nonetheless of what happens to any nation. The United States, for instance, a relatively young nation, it will eventually come to an end. That's not even a question. It will. And it will be a mere footnote in the history compared to the kingdom of God in the story of the kingdom of God the United States will be lucky to make it in as a footnote the U.S. will come and go but Jesus Jesus's kingdom lasts forever and it it does not depend on the state of our country and so we don't need to feel desperate depending on where the country goes and and many times that's short-sighted of what God is doing elsewhere in the world, in other countries, in other societies. It's short-sighted of, of history. But we don't need to feel desperate even if we do see elements of our society that are progressing worse. We don't need to feel as if, and we ought not to actually, feel as if the kingdom of God is, is worked through the, the mechanisms of government. But we see here the kingdom of God grows like a mustard seed in distinction from the kingdoms of this world. Yes, we want to see the kingdom of God as it grows have an impact on our society. We pray that it it has a a positive impact even on our own country. We should want to see Christian principles and Christian values reflected in how we order ourselves as as a society, but we don't need to feel desperate as if the two are inseparably linked and dependent on one another. And so be encouraged. That despite what sometimes feels like appearances to the contrary, God's kingdom purposes will ultimately prevail. As we will end our our time together this morning, we think of the hymn, Jesus Shall Reign. Jesus shall reign wherever the sun, does its successive journeys run. That is guaranteed to happen. That is not in question. It's only a matter of time. So we ought never to be disheartened, distraught, or desperate. That is, fear is is, is not a Christian virtue, and it has no place for those who who perceive the reign of Christ and understand its inevitable conquest. We, We engage in mission, we engage in ministry with utmost confidence of its success. We know that the seed that has been planted will eventually culminate in the fullness of God's kingdom. And so although the kingdom is hidden from many and has seemingly insignificant origins, it is discovered by some and will grow beyond measure. And Jesus is the one who achieves this reign of God. That is, Jesus shows up in the gospel of Mark. He announces, the first words we get from Jesus, that behold, the kingdom of God is at hand and ultimately Jesus is going to accomplish that he is going to break the power of sin that tarnished God's kingdom as the as humanity fell into sin and the kingdom is corrupted we might say Jesus breaks the power of sin he releases us from its corruption he defeats death that is the stain over God's kingdom and over God's creation he brings in the new covenant and the spirit that animates and controls his new community of believers This is the kingdom of God, the restoration of God's creation, the the, the, the reachievement of God's rule over his people. And ultimately, Jesus does this, as we see, in rather unexpected ways. He is an unexpected king of an unexpected kingdom. As Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus humbles himself. Though being in the very nature God, he humbled himself, namely, by taking on humanity, by becoming a human being, by becoming a human being who was born in a lowly setting, in a manger, amidst shepherds, from Nazareth, as as one of his disciples says, what good can come out of Nazareth? And he not only humbles himself in his very person and in his ministry, but ultimately by taking our death for us. He humbles himself even to the point of death and the very death of a slave, something that Romans didn't even want to talk about, crucifixion. Jesus is the king who reigns from the cross. He is is the king whose kingdom comes through suffering. And so oftentimes, so too for us, our mission of seeing the kingdom advance comes through suffering. It doesn't come in expected ways of triumph and power but by yielding power, by serving and sacrificing. And the Lord's Supper is a promise that not only looks back to Christ's death as the bread and the cup are these pictures of Jesus' body and blood given for us, not only does the Lord's Supper look back to Jesus' death, In the past and what it accomplished, but the Lord's Supper then by very definition looks forward to the ends of Jesus' death. The very things that Jesus' death has already accomplished even as we await its fulfillment. It points forward to what that death has won. As Jesus says in Matthew 26, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The Lord's Supper is a guarantee. It's a promise. It's God's promise to us that not only has he bought us with his death, but he has also bought the kingdom. The kingdom will come. The mission will succeed. My mind goes to the hymn, There is a Fountain. There is a fountain filled with blood. Verse three says this, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Be saved to sin no more, be saved to sin no more, till all the ransom church of God